Get a balanced analysis on both domestic and international topics within the framework of cross-cultural comparisons. This is Dialogue. Hello and welcome to Dialogue. 2023 marked a vibrant year in China's diplomacy, with dozens of state leaders from major powers and small countries paying official visits to China, and President Xi Jinping meeting for a face-to-face -face summit with U.S. President Joe Biden in November. Meanwhile, China has been making great efforts to bring peace to parts of the world, such as Ukraine and the Middle East. What diplomatic achievements did China make in 2023? Is China on better terms with Western powers such as the U.S. and the EU? And what progress did China make in contributing to multilateralism and global governance? Join us for this year-end special discussion from Beijing. I'm Xu Qingduo. We are happy to have uh, Dr. Zhao Hai, uh, Director of International Political Studies at the National Institute for Global Strategy, and uh, Zun Ahmad Khan, Research Fellow at the Center for China and Globalization. Welcome to Dialogue. We started with an interview, actually, uh, in the recent interview, Danino Turk, former president of uh, Slovenia and also president of the World Leadership Alliance Club de Madrid. He said, China was not only very active, but also very successful. Uh, he was talking about the 2023 of China. I wonder, what's your take? I will start with uh, uh, Zun here. Okay, thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Chindo, for having me on the program. I think I, I do have to completely agree with this statement. China has been proactive in terms of uh, being very uh, forward-looking and also promoting multilateralism, promoting a balanced foreign policy that takes into view um, all different parts of the world, the respectability that China is giving many countries that are maybe developing or facing challenges is something very important. It's something the world has been looking for. Uh, Hai, so balanced and also proactive uh, and yeah. achievements uh, in terms of bringing peace and stability. I agree with the two. <clears throat> first of all, this is a very active diplomatic year for China because this is the first year uh, the world is walking out of the uh, pandemic. And for, for the past three years, uh, diplomacy as well as global situation is changing dramatically. And some trends has been accelerated by the development of AI, by the development of the global climate change, and also by the development of the various changing of global supply chain. So you can see that uh, underneath, there are a lot of factors that are changing after the pandemic. And there is extensive re research showing that after pandemic, normally global order will go through a chaotic stage because of power vacuum, because of the change, changing of the population uh, distribution, uh, and also immigration, all kinds of factors uh, are here. So China has very clearly uh, stated that we want global stability, and China has been striving for that, you know, doing our own part of the work, uh, trying to bring stability to the world. One big factor, I mean, uh, obviously we'll touch upon that is the China-U.S. relationship. We uh, have seen, you know, a flurry of U.S. Uh, visits by senior officials to Beijing in the first half of this year. And then, of course, the summit between the two leaders in San Francisco. So after that, people seem to be cautiously optimistic about the, the ties between the two most powerful countries, two biggest economies. Mm. Uh, Zhao Hai, I wonder what's your prediction? How do you see the relationship between Beijing and Washington now and uh, into the near future? 
Well, first of all, the one of the fundamental problem with the U.S. is that its perception of China is not only wrong, but uh, also their policy following this wrong perception, which make China-U.S. relations very difficult. And because of domestic issues uh, between the two uh, sort of parties or two different factions, they have an internal struggle and making they have a spillover effect, making this bilateral relations more confusing and problematic. So this year, what we have done is trying to communicate with the U.S. side, clearly conveying our message to the other side, showing that our real strategic intention, not wrongfully interpreted by the other side, but our true intentions, and that gives the, a better perception for both sides. And the progress is that after, before and after the San Francisco summit, bilateral context, the channels of communication, is gradually reestablished on economic side, on diplomatic side, and right now uh, on uh, military, military side. side. So that's a good sign that two powers are communicating with each side and manage this very complex relationship responsibly. So moving forward, I'm cautiously uh, sort of pos uh, positive about this bilateral relationship coming next year, even though there's election year in the U.S. Mm -hmm. We're worried about and concerned about uh, the effect of the U.S. election uh, on the bilateral relationship, but still, I think the strategic understanding of the bilateral relationship is clarifying and the, at, at least right now the Biden administration, the decision makers uh, have a clear-eyed understanding of the importance of this bilateral relationship and particularly in this uh, destabilizing world, a stable and improving bilateral relationship between China and U.S. is critically important for maintaining global peace. I think a lot of people understand that, you know, this uh, relationship is critically important to both countries, but also to the rest of the world, you know, given their, um, you know, the role they played. In. Uh, but at the same time, you do see people see it, you know, in I would say different shapes, different opinions about uh, where we are and uh, what's the nature of this relationship. For example, uh, in February, Dialogue interviewed Professor John Mears Hammer, you know, from uh, the University of Chicago. Mm -hmm. According to him, you know, there is no question that China and the U.S. are in the new Cold War. Uh, let's take a listen. There's no question we're in a new Cold War. And when President Biden says he doesn't seek a new Cold War, what he's trying to do rhetorically is say, I'm not responsible for the new Cold War. The Chinese are responsible for the new Cold War. And you see the same thing going on with regard to Russia. Uh, in the Ukraine crisis, what the Americans are dedicated to doing is blaming the Russians for the Ukraine war and making sure that nobody thinks that the United States and its allies are responsible for that new Cold War. But uh, we are in a new Cold War, and that applies to Asia as well as to Europe at this point in time. Now. A lot of people say, well, if we're in a new Cold War, why are we having all this trade between China and the United States? Look, there's no question you're going to have a lot of trade over time between China and the United States. You want to remember, you had a lot of trade in Europe before World War I, but you still had World War I. You could have a great deal of economic intercourse between two countries that are bitter security rivals. So you see this happen uh, over time in uh, places like Europe and even in places like East Asia. But it's very important to understand that there is one kind of trade 
where the security competition is very much at play. And this involves cutting edge technologies. The United States is playing hardball with China, not in terms of overall trade, but with regard to trade that involves cutting edge technologies. What the United States wants to do is make sure it remains the world's leading country in terms of developing cutting edge technologies and making sure that China is not a serious rival on that front. So what you see today and what you're definitely gonna see moving forward is the United States making efforts to influence trade that involves high technology, but not influencing trade that involves other kinds of goods. And by the way, you'll see this with regard to trade involving Europe and China. The Americans will protest greatly if the Europeans trade technologies with China that will help China maintain its sophisticated technological industries. But otherwise, the Americans will not protest much if the Europeans trade with China. So, Zuan, mm -hmm. uh, do you agree with uh, John that, you know, we are now in the new Cold War between Beijing and Washington? Comparing the current dynamic with the Cold War between the Soviet Union and the United States, let's say, would be pretty flawed because uh, the economic intertwinedness of, uh, of both uh, China and the U.S. is very different. The world is in a different uh, shape. I mean, it's it, China is not ideological. China is very pragmatic. And China is, I think, if there is, from a developing country perspective, China is stepping in to just help countries address very pragmatic challenges. And in that sense, I think there is no such consensus in China to see how can we, when can we overtake the United States. It's really about stability, moving further, moving forward, and uh, having very specific national goals and aspirations, and seeing how, you know, whether it's the US, Europe, or other parts of the world, how they align with China's vision. So I personally disagree, we do not see a cold war is shaping up. There is definitely, like Zhao Hai also mentioned, a need to be more clear. China has been, again, very active in articulating and conveying what the relationship in different perspectives, very practical, economic, technology, climate change, overall global governance, poverty alleviation, development of the world at large, what China wants that relationship to look like. Uh, we have the opportunity, even globally, regions, entire regions and continents are much more vocal about what they expect from China, from the U.S., and that will create a situation where their voices and their priorities will be will be more central to where the relationship is heading. You know, you look at the China-EU, probably that's, uh, I'm not sure whether that's a better term to describe this relationship. But, you know, we do see EU leaders, including uh, leaders at the EU level and also at the individual nations level, you know, French, uh, German leaders. Uh, they were in China, the Chinese premier was in Europe, we do see a summit also at the end of the year uh, between the two sides. So, you know, 2023, how do you characterize this year for China-EU relationship here, Zhaohai? Well, I think it's a difficult year for China-EU relationship, uh, even though by the end of the year, it seems to be uh, hopeful that bilateral relationship is improving. 
Uh, however, there are limits and there are still problems that need to be resolved. I think most prominent feature of this year is that uh, because of the conflict in, in Ukraine, European Union and major powers in Europe seems to be losing its strategic autonomy. And for China, that's a problem because uh, when Europe has its strategic autonomy, uh, that's better for China-EU relationship because EU will make their own decision. And because EU has no fundamental geopolitical conflict with China, it can treat China more fairly with a balanced policy. Uh, but because they're more concerned about Russia and because of China-Russia relationship, EU is, is more and more getting closer to the United States and become captive of the U.S. foreign policy. So that makes EU policy towards China more difficult and sometimes more complicated and, and also more confusing for China because of the sort of definition of China, uh, either as a partner or as a competitor or even as a systematic rival. So because of this, I think China is trying to clarify uh, EU's position and, and continue to support EU's strategic autonomy. And that means that China will continue to develop relationship with EU and sometimes will take uh, unilateral actions uh, trying to persuade EU that China's policy is consistent and is not a threat to EU's uh, long-term interest. And China's trying to contribute to the peaceful uh, resolution of the conflict in Ukraine. So I think it's a very difficult relationship to, the mani to manage in the coming years, but hopefully we will gradually sort of making this relationship more uh, mutually understanding and mutually respect. Mm -hmm. uh, speak of the EU position or their China policy, let's take a listen for uh, my interview with uh, Wu Hongbo, a special representative of the Chinese government on European affairs. Ambassador Wu talked about, uh, basically he said the EU is three positioning China and he's very confusing. I've been talking to many uh, European friends. I said, you and I both drivers. When we drive a car to a crossroad, then you are expecting a one light, either red, green, or yellow. But now we, we have a strange situation. You have three lights uh, at the same time, perhaps green as a, a partner and the yellow as competitor and red, like the systematic rival. So not Chinese are being confused whether we're going to drive forward or backward or stop there forever. Even the European friends are confused themselves. If we have a different social system with the European Union and we become rivals, then actually this is a status quo 20 years ago why the European partners did not say, then, you are a systematic rival. Why now? And this is really harmful. So I do hope that the European Union friends and the governments would stick to the original definition of our relations, that is comprehensive strategic partnership. Yes, Zun, of course, if you're from the Chinese point of view, if you look at uh, you know, EU's policy on China, you know, it's a partner, it's a competitor, it's a systematic rival. Mm -hmm. and many people feel puzzled, like uh, in particular, like a systematic rival. You know, as you said earlier, China does not, uh, you know, export its ideology. Mm -hmm. It's not ideological. You know, we understand that there are different systems, but it's okay. We are fine, perfectly fine with mm -hmm. that. You know, we can continue with our trade and the investment, uh, you know, business as, 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 as usual. Mm -hmm. But somehow uh, the EU see things differently. The European scholar emphasized that China thinks 
strategic autonomy for the EU means equal equality in relations, in mentality, in mindset, attitude towards the US and China. But actually, strategic autonomy should mean, maybe, I don't know what others would think, but it, it should mean that these two relationships, whatever the dynamic between the US and China, the EU's approach towards either has to be independent. And the distance will depend on the bilateral, the uh, Beijing's relationship with Brussels versus Washington's with mm -hmm. Brussels. Mm -hmm. And later in the conversation, um, actually some others pointed out that even in Europe, in the EU, we do not have a definition. We don't really understand what exactly, there is no consensus on what is strategic autonomy. There is no real consensus on even, they don't say decoupling, they say de-risking. What is de-risking? It is just a notch below what the United States is saying. It is less extreme. It is mm -hmm. maybe more in line with at least two decades of overall Europe's uh, growing relationship with China. China is uh, creating a situation as much as possible by being open, by listening to these growing um, complex issues that somehow are maybe a result of influence by um, of the US and, and maybe the hostilities or the situation of during amidst the Russia-Ukraine conflict, it is definitely a more dire situation. But China has been very open. And by encouraging more people to come to China, visit for themselves, understand, I think it's, it's opening uh, room for dialogue, for reminding ourselves, like as you said, it is not, there's nothing ideological about this relationship. There are interests that align. The EU can benefit from uh, expanding cooperation with China and vice versa. Related to China-US relationship or mm -hmm. China-EU relationship, yeah. uh, actually, it's about their views and points and approaches mm -hmm. to the conflicts, not only in Ukraine, but also in Gaza, yeah. that somehow is dividing the world in a sense. Mm -hmm. I read this question uh, to a US scholar at a, that is a, a you know, Paris Peace Forum about the Western practice. Mm -hmm. Let's take a listen. Hello, uh, I come from China, uh, CGTN. I have a question for the pricing crisis in Gaza. When we talk about the Ukraine, we say Russian actions there, the killing of civilians and children. We say genocide, massacre. But now, more than 10,000 Palestinians have been killed. More than half of them are children, and very few from the West to term that as a genocide or, you know, as a cruel atrocity, we have to stop. Is there a practice of double standard? Uh, with respect to the question on Gaza from our Chinese colleague, uh, you know, my position is Israel has a right to defend itself, but its violations of international humanitarian law, as I see it, are both um, immoral and also counterproductive to the interests of both Israel and to um, the broader region. I think that um, this is an area where um, the United States has to be very careful. Um, and in addition to European allies, uh, to be much more sensitive. Um, and I'm not saying that they haven't said important words, uh, but to try to exercise some restraint on uh, Israel uh, in its uh, very violent campaign to go after Hamas. How do you compare their practice here? First of all, it's not something new for this region to be treated as uh, less human in many ways. I mean, we have seen millions that have perished over various wars, various interventions, wars against terror, etc., over the last especially 20 years. And uh, some of, sometimes these were called 
blind wars and there was less of, a, of an inclination to even recognize the extent of human suffering. So what's happening in Gaza, there is no secret that um, even though we are seeing some of the most horrific, maybe the most horrific images that the world has been exposed to. We are seeing death toll, especially of children. There is absolutely a double standard. There is, there is a tendency to belittle or even to justify the suffering, the scale of human suffering that's happening. And I think this is something the, a major part of the world has been exhausted, has seen over decades already, and it isn't something new. So I would say, actually, it's important to note China's role. China is supporting international humanitarian law, is respecting all of those treaties, the Geneva Convention. Uh, China is playing a very responsible role in the UN Security Council. And this role, China's um, proactive um, involvement right now, you know. Back on Chinese diplomacy, you know, Zhaohai, people would ask, uh, you know, mm -hmm. remember also uh, 2023, China brokered this uh, sort of peace process between Saudi Arabia and Iran. Mm -hmm. The two countries uh, resumed the di diplomatic relationship uh, there. So people would ask, you know, what is the ultimate goal of China in terms of, uh, like, you know, broking peace, uh, calling for ceasefire uh, in this region? I think uh, China's approach now is very clear, contrast to other countries, um, particularly America, uh, that uh, we're approaching this through, um, you know, first of all, uh, having both sides uh, willing to compromise with each other. And then as a third party, as a mediator, we could go in and bring them together. And then the second thing is that China never imposed its own will onto others. Uh, we're always trying to find peaceful solution instead of uh, military or sanction or other mm -hmm. for, uh, coercive uh, means uh, to achieve our own goal. And the third thing is that uh, uh, China always conduct quiet diplomacy because we can achieve something. We don't need to uh, like propagate this uh, and make that a political capital for us uh, because we don't have that uh, uh, system. Uh, yeah, the system of pressure that mm -hmm. uh, always trying to push you left and right because of uh, you know interest groups mm -hmm. uh, that are involved. So I think on the one hand, China is a new emerging uh, mediator in the world. And actually recently other countries, including uh, Switzerland, recognize uh, China's new role and, and trying to help China uh, to cooperate and, and uh, sort of intervene into other conflicts around the world, playing a bigger role, a bigger mm -hmm. responsible great power role in the world. On the other hand, I think the world needs more of this kind of role because the conflict is emerging globally everywhere. And uh, the thing is, without resolving uh, some of the major conflict in the world, we're now seeing more small arms going through the world, potentially increasing uh, terrorist attacks around the globe. And also, because of that, more crimes crossing borders. So actually, in this particular moment, we need more global multilateral cooperation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And China is more willing to cooperate, uh, but without uh, ideological prejudice, without mm -hmm. bias against China. Uh, and other countries are more willing to also participate in this coalition for peace and development. That's why China 3, you know, a global initiative is so important because that's show the real intention of China globally. John had mentioned multilateralism. It reminds me of, uh, you know, the expansion of uh, the BRICS uh, countries yeah. group and uh, this uh, Shanghai Cooperation Organization. So how do you see that of, uh, it's almost like a trend or the development there? You know, yeah. six new members, uh, they are going to join uh, the BRICS group. A lot of people will ask, what, what does BRICS 
uh, even BRICS expansion, right? I mean, these countries, what do they really have in common? Mm -hmm. What do they, um, are they trying to de-dollarize? Are mm -hmm. they trying to uh, build, uh, is it an anti-hegemonic alliance? Mm -hmm. But essentially, it's just countries coming together and seeing what they have in common, realizing that historically, or at least in recent decades, they have not benefited from certain global institutions that uh, that determine opportunities for them. So why not have more of a stake, more of a voice? Let's come together, find solutions that are uh, that work for all of us. Let's improve the strength of our voice and the understanding of what we need to do in order to be better off every passing year. I think that's really the mindset. So, th so China's coming in, you know, and promoting uh, multilateralism that is inclusive that recognizes the common ground, the common denominator that countries and regions want to develop. They are sick of being, of ideologies being imposed on them, and they're not thinking about dethroning an empire, they're just thinking about what are their pragmatic needs and uh, being part of solutions that are needed for their region. Briefly, 2024 uh, for the Chinese diplomacy, Johai. Yeah, I think the world order is in transition and everybody knows the unipolar moment is over. Mm. And now we're heading towards the real multipolar world. And 2024 will be a year continue to be in transition. And there will be a lot of danger outside because of the factors that I mentioned still uh, mm -hmm. moving forward and uh, changing, pushing this world, uh, having a lot of changes. Uh, for China, on the one hand, we need to stay on the right side of history and continue to promote peace and development around the world. Uh, but at the same time, we need to defend our core interest uh, against anyone who try to undermine it. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think uh, China facing a lot of challenges uh, in the future, uh, and particularly in the year of 2024, it's a major year of election. There election, are a lot yes. of uh, political yeah. uh, disturbing uh, moments. Uh, but at the same time, I think China will just focus on what it does best um, by developing its own economy, taking care of its own people, and also bringing uh, people who share or, or have a like-minded country who share our same goal of uh, you know, a, a community of shared future. Um, I think that will be uh, the defining year for China's diplomacy of 2024. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you, Zun. Thank you, Zhou Hai. With that, we come to the end for today's special discussion. I'm Xu Jin Thanks for being with us. See you next time. With a history of 5,000 years, it's no surprise that China has created a fabulous treasury of folk tales. Once a year, on the seventh day of the seventh month, all the magpies fly up to heaven and form a bridge. So many amazing worlds to discover. I want a new palace, said King Mu of Zhou one day. Chinese folk tales retold for audiences today. Will, will you marry me? He asked. And with little hesitation, she said, <laughs> Yes! 5,000 years of amazing Chinese folk tales. My father must not go to war. Someone must take his place. You'll find Chinese Folk Tales Season 3, wherever you discover your favorite podcasts. As 2023 comes to an end, we have to recognize what a phenomenal year it has been for several athletes and teams. Tune into this week's episode of Sideline Story to hear our thoughts on these performances. We also talk about some of the year's best performers and what we expect to see in 2024.